Good morning, City Light. I'm Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I hope you had a you enjoyed your Memorial Day weekend. It was it was a good time for me. I got some extended time with my family. We made a lemonade stand and uh, conned all of our friends and family to come over and buy lemonade from our kids for exuberant amounts of money. So that was good. Uh, <laughs> I also got the opportunity to spend some time with all the other City Light pastors. So we went to a retreat uh, in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, don't know why you would retreat there, but we did. Uh, no, uh, there's a conference there. And so we went out there and it was just incredible to hang with these guys. They're some of the most faithful, humble men I've ever had the pleasure to be around. But we also got to hear stories about what God is doing in and through all of the City Light Church family. And so, I mean, I just want to say one thing about you guys. I want to say I'm proud of you. Uh, I'm so proud, and I was so honored to be able to share the stories about what God is doing in and through all of you. Uh, We've seen broken marriages be restored. We've seen people come to know Jesus by his grace. We've seen almost 30 people baptized in such a short period of time. And and I know by and large it's because you've said yes to Jesus about being here and and yes to Jesus about following in uh, in his life. his gospel. And so thank you. Uh, thank you so much for being a part of this family. And uh, it was just it was such an honor uh, to be a part of that. Uh, our time this morning will be spent uh, again in the book of John. And, and Jesus is, um, is going to tell his disciples about a promise, a promise of a, a helper. And so if you would open your Bibles to chapter 14, uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 15. Uh, but if, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been going through the upper room discourse. So this is Jesus' gospel goodbye to his disciples right before he goes to his death. And and these guys need some good news. They need some good news because they've been walking with Jesus, their mentor, their friend, their spiritual father for a a while now, and, and he's going to die. And he tells them that, hey, I'm leaving and you can't come with me. And so they're going to need um, some good news in the midst of their anxiety and their troubled heart. Uh, we talked about last week how, how they, were, they were having a troubled heart because he was leaving. And they're like, okay, so where are we going to go? What are we going to do? And so Jesus presses in and says, trust me, look to me as the remedy for your anxious, for your troubled heart. And so these men, after walking with Jesus for about three and a half years or so, uh, they're wrestling with the question as their, as their relationship comes to an end here and says, man, what do we do next? What are we going to do once he's gone? Like, how are we going to know what to say, what to do when trouble comes? How are we going to be instructed in truth if Jesus isn't with us? How are we supposed to know what to do without Jesus to teach us? Now, I think these are questions that we all wrestle with at some point or another, where if we're getting anxious or, or if we're getting, having some anxiety or troubled hearts, we're like, okay, so what do we do? Like, how do we, how do we know what to do? How do we know what to think? How do we know what to believe when things seem so chaotic around us? How do we, how do we take joy in Jesus in circumstances that, that don't seem to be joyous places to take joy in? And sometimes that happens also on a not-so-spiritual level where Uh, We're going through life in the different seasons of life, and we're like, okay, so what do I do now? That's the question that rings, right? So if you're an empty nester, your kids are going off to college, and they're going off into the workforce, and you're sitting there asking yourself, what do I do with my time? Like, what am I I supposed to do now if I don't have these people to care for? If you're a college student, you're like, 
what am I going to do when my laundry doesn't get done? Like, I'm not sure how that works. Um, or, or, or you've been eating ramen for the last 10 days and you're trying to figure out how you're supposed to eat nutrition. Um, so anyway, th- those things happen. If you're buying a house, all of a sudden the landlord's not going to come in and fix the pipes for you. You have to figure out a way for that to happen. And so we ask these questions and we're just like, okay, so what do we do with ourselves? And so like the disciples, Jesus gives us a beautiful promise that says, hey, I'm going to send a helper. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. He promises that not only will the Holy Spirit be with us, but that he's going to reside in us. He's going to take up resident in us. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about that God's Holy Spirit lives in us if we love Jesus. My first point is because the Holy Spirit lives in us, you'll never be alone. So we'll pick it up in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so when the disciples heard the news that Jesus was going away, they were experiencing loss. They were experiencing desperation, but Jesus delivers a promise here and says, hey, my Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth is coming. But before I launch into that, Let's go ahead and deal with the kind of the awkward tension of that very first verse. Jesus says here, if you loved me, you will keep my commands. So at first glance, it seems like an ultimatum of loving Jesus, right? Like it it seems like an if-then statement. But what this if-then statement is, it's not if if you obey me, then you'll get my love. It's if you truly love me, then you'll obey me. So it's, it's, it's a question of do you truly love Jesus? And if that's true, then your life will reflect that, meaning it, you will follow or obey his commands. That will be true of you. So following Jesus' command is a response to loving Jesus. It's a natural byproduct of loving Jesus. But how do we come to love Jesus in the first place? I think you, you, we have to look at the rest of the book of John as we've preached through the first 14 chapters. And what we've seen is that Jesus undeniably first loves us. He first pursues us, first comes after us. He is the one who comes. And so verse 1 has, has to be seen in the context of the rest of that book. We cannot be able, we cannot be able to love Jesus unless he loves us first. There's, there's no way for us to do this. We don't love him unless we see first and realize how much he's loved you and I. And so the same John that recorded the words, if you love me, also wrote 1 John chapter 14, verse 19, chapter 4, sorry, verse 19, which says, we love because he first loved us. So let me give you an example. My son Uriah, let me ask you a question. He's three years old. Why does he love me? Well, the answer is because I love him. Like that's, that's the clear answer is that I love him. If, if I didn't love him, if I didn't first love him, if I treated him poorly, he would not love me. And in fact, if, if he didn't know my love, he probably would actually work really hard to try to earn my love, right? If he didn't experience love from me, he'd, he'd be really insecure about our relationship, But if he knows that I love him first, then when I instruct him to do something, he's more likely to respond because he loves me in return. So my three-year-old Uriah, he's wonderful. He's very sweet. However, 
He's not always good, okay? He, he doesn't always respond in loving obedience. So like the other night, for instance, we're doing our bedtime routine. And so we, I give him a bath and then he gets his jammies on and then we get his teeth brushed. And then we go into his room, read a story. And then I said, okay, buddy, lay down so you can go to sleep. And he stands up, looks at me and says, I don't want to. And so in my heart, I'm thinking, boy, I will, you don't even know what I'm going to do to you right now or what I'm capable of doing. <laughs> However, I didn't respond that way. I'm trying to practice what I've been teaching y'all, okay? I'm trying to practice that. Remember when we said that it's not, we don't obey Jesus because he said so. Like he doesn't say, because I said so, therefore obey. And so I, I took a different approach. I, we, we obey because he loves us. And so with Uriah, I sat him down and I said, okay, buddy do you know that I love you? And he's like, yes, daddy. Okay. Do you know, do you love me? Yes, daddy. Okay. Okay. Do you know that daddy loves you? And when I tell you to do something, it's because I want your good. And he looks at me and says, yes, daddy. Okay. So because you know that I love you, when I tell you to do something, what would be a better response? He said, say, okay, and do it. I said, okay, buddy. And he lays down. <laughs> and I, I reminded him, I said, buddy, I, I love you. And he said, I love you too, daddy. I said, okay, good night. And, and so if I, me, an imperfect father, can love my son and he obey, how much greater for the heavenly father who loves us immensely more than I could ever dream of loving my kid, right? Like if, 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 if I can do that, if, we can do, if my son can do that with me, how much more for our heavenly father? Not because he said so, but because he loves us so. And so that's why we follow his commands. The father says that I, I love you, and because of that, love me, love me back, therefore you obey me, right? So there's a, it's a response to that. It's not an obedience to his commands because it's an exchange for his love. We just, we just have to see that so clearly. We can't function out of this. If, if we obey his commands, then he'll give us love. We don't want to confuse the two. Our life is not one obligatory uh, payment to some creditor but a grateful service to a loving father. Jesus' obedience saves us. Our obedience shows Jesus, right? Our, Jesus' obedience saves. Our obedience shows. And so if, if we get those two confused, if we get those two mixed up, and we think that our obedience saves us, we fail to make Jesus and see Jesus as the king of our story, as the hero of our story, and so if this is true of you, if you love Jesus, and if he's truly taken up residence in you, then your life should be different. It should be marked by the progressive looking like, being like, acting more like Jesus because you love him and because you're obeying his commands. It's not out of a reluctant obedience, hoping that he might be impressed by you or disappointed with you if you don't obey properly. This is a relationship with a loving, living God who breathe life into us. We respond in loving obedience. So we become more like Jesus by more, not by more effort, but by more loving grace, right? So he specifically, though, uh, in this particular passage, gives us, like, how do we do that? Like, he, he gives us the power to do so, and the way he gives us the power to do that is through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus didn't leave the disciples alone and say, okay, guys, figure it out on your own. No, he, he said, no, I promise I'm going to send a helper. I'm going to tag him in. He's called the Holy Spirit. When no one else is around, he's going to be with you. When you're all by yourself, he will be with you. And here's how he confirms that. He says in verse 18 through 21, he's, he's speaking to them. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. 
but I will come to you. And, and, and what he's referring to when he, he, he will come to them, he's referring to his resurrection. The resurrection, the death and the resurrection of Jesus actually confirms the reality of the Holy Spirit. It confirms that they will never be alone because he conquered death and he conquered sin. And when he speaks his word of instruction to them, he's wanting to confirm like, hey, guys, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay because I'm going to show you the most miraculous thing that will ever happen. I'm going to raise something that I'm going to show that I have victory over death. Don't miss this. This is an incredible promise that Jesus is giving his disciples, giving to people who love him. He's not saying, hey, when things get hard, just think happy thoughts, right? It's not this mystical thing that he's promising here. No, he's saying, I confirm it with reality, with truth that I did, I will in fact die, and I do in fact live now and forever. Look at Romans 8, 11 with me. It says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It's a reality. It's, it's real. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, the very power of God unto salvation conquered sin and death, and it lives in you. We don't have to live as orphans anymore because he's purchased us with the blood of Jesus. We're, no, we're not slaves to sin anymore. No, we have a familiar relationship with the living God now. In verse 21, it says that we are loved by the Father. We've been spiritually adopted, as, as Romans 8.15, adopted as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Do you know what that means when it says we can cry, Abba, Father? It means that we can call Jesus Daddy. We can call God our Daddy. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't mean that in an irreverent way. What I mean that by is when my little boy looks me in the eye and calls me daddy, it's out of the great affection of his heart, the love and the trust and the respect that he has for me that he calls me daddy. And that's how we can speak to God. Isn't that a beautiful promise that the Spirit confirms in your heart that we get to call God daddy? We're no longer lost sheep without a shepherd. We're not orphans without parents. We're not religious folks with a detached God. We're loved children of a loving father God. So they, the disciples, for the first time after Jesus would die and raise, would actually be able to experience the Holy Spirit of God who confirms and allows them to see truly how beautiful Jesus is. Truly how beautiful Jesus is. In verse 19, it says that he lives and the disciples also live, right? And so what he's saying there is saying, man, put your faith not in what you see in front of you, but put your faith in me. It's saying that the only strong thing that, that keeps them up is the object of their confidence, right? Like that's what lifts them up. Their object, the object of their confidence is Jesus. You don't live because you're a good moral person. You live because Jesus defeated death and sin. We don't live because we read our Bibles and, and serve at our church or give money, which are all good things. But life is found in Jesus who gave all of his life so that we might live and he lives now. And so that's our confidence. What a great promise. These men didn't know at the time what we know, the fact that through Jesus' death and resurrection that we are given true life. You see what he's saying here? He's saying, in the loneliest place of your life. What's the loneliest human condition? It's, it's probably death, right? 
You, you do that alone. That's the loneliest place possible. And what Jesus did is he took that loneliness. He hung up on the cross alone to the point of death. And so even death, even persecution, or when you can't pay your bills, or when you lose your job, or when you feel like you're all alone and nobody cares and you don't have friends, Jesus stands up and says, hey, I care. I love you. He is with you. He is in you. He is through you. He is the Holy Spirit. And he's not only with you. Look at verse 22 through 24. It says, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my commands, my word, and my father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So he starts out with saying, Judas, not the guy that betrayed Jesus. He just wanted to clarify that. Different Judas guy, disciple. Uh, he, Judas asked the question, okay, so how is this going to happen? How is this going to manifest itself? And, and, and I think the key phrase in that is, is right here when he says, we will come to him and make our home with him. So God, the God, will dwell in the believer. Like, in, in those who love him, he will take up residence. So, so last week, Mike said something incredible. Last week, Mike said that heaven goes from being a place to a person. And I think that's beautiful, because after we die, we get to be with Jesus. It's beautiful. It's awesome. But what about right now? What about right now? And, and, and what this text is saying is that today, the power of God lives in us. He lives in our hearts. My daughter, Evangeline, is an incredible theologian, and so she's five. Uh, And and what she said to me one day, and and I'll remember this forever, she said, so, Dad, if God lives in our hearts, then heaven is in our hearts. And I want to say yes and amen. That is beautiful. That is exactly what's going on. That's what Jesus is promising, is that he himself, God himself, is going to dwell in in our hearts, and so that we'll never have to be alone. That is a huge promise for us today, church. Not only because the Holy Spirit lives in us, we'll never be alone, but, there's a but, also because the Holy Spirit lives in us, we will be reminded. And so that gets me to my second point. My second point is because the Holy Spirit lives in us, we will be reminded. We'll pick up in verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise and let us go from here. So one thing that you should know about me, and some of you already know, I have a, a terrible memory. It's it's horrible. So I can, I can begin a conversation with you, and within five seconds of you telling me your name, my, na- my brain just deleted it. It's gone. I don't even know where it is. I've looked for it throughout the conversation. I couldn't find it. So those of you who have experienced that with me, 
Thank you for having grace. I really appreciate that. I need it. I mean, it's terrible. I'll walk into a room about to do something, and then, like, I'll be like, okay, why am I in this room? Like, dude's got some issues, okay? Like, I don't know why I'm wired that way. It's just the way it is. I've tried to fix it, counseling, medication, whatever. No. Uh, <laughs> however, I want to ask you a question. Has there ever been someone in your life who's just been a great influence on your development? Has there ever been someone who's just kind of spoken a word of truth over you, and then when they're gone, you can't help but to hear their voice continually speaking that same truth? I, I've, I've experienced that. I can honestly say with all sincerity that my wife has had one of the greatest impacts and influences on my life out of any other person. She's my best friend. I love her. She's incredible. And, and so those who know me well know that I just don't spew out encouragement. That's just not who I am. Like, I'm just, again, not built that way. Something's wrong. But what they do know is that usually I'll give a loving rebuke or I'll kind of critique a little bit, right? So, so that's kind of my, my, my bit a little bit. But one day I'm sitting with Colleen in, in, at our dinner table and I was like, you know, honey, I really appreciate our friend for his generosity, his humility, and, and just how much he loves Jesus and how encouraging he is. And, and, and I was like, man, I I'd like to be like that. Like, I, I'd love for, for my heart to start to grow in those areas of generosity and humility. And she was like, you should tell him that. Uh, I thought for a minute. It was like, well, maybe I will. Not a bad idea. And, <laughs> and so we, we went on in this conversation. But the thing that keeps ringing in my heart, though, is the, the following thing that she said. She gave me a challenge and said, why don't you make it a practice of telling people when you think something's encouraging about them? And I'm like, oh, a novel idea. All right. It's just, but seriously, it's impacted my life so much. Like this was years ago. And I still remember the conversation like it was today because her voice continues to speak into my mind. Like whenever I have something encouraging to say about somebody in my heart, I hear her say, why don't you tell them? And so I go to tell him, like, Austin's witnessed that, actually. He, he even talks about it sometimes, saying, man, my dude's so encouraging. It's such a weird thing. And I'm like, I know it's weird. I don't understand it. But it's Colleen's voice in my head just saying, hey, make sure you encourage this dude. Uh, he needs some help. Um, but that's exactly what Jesus is trying to point us to here. Jesus is promising the disciples, promising us that the Spirit of God will do just that. He will speak and remind us, and his voice will be in our hearts reminding us of some things. And, and I think there's three things that he lists here that, that Jesus is, is telling us that the Spirit will remind them of and, and ultimately remind us of, okay? Verse 26 is the first one. It says that he will remind them of Jesus, of what Jesus told them. So, so God's word. So after this traumatic experience where their friend, their, their go-to guy dies on the cross, these guys are going to need some reminders, right? They're going to need to be reminded that, hey, he said that he's going to come back. They're going to need to be reminded that, hey, make sure that you love everybody, love each other even. And they're going to need to be reminded that they're loved by God, right? And so the truth is, is that we, we all have some poor memory issues when it comes to what is true. There are so many distractions in our life that we forget that the truth is that Jesus is all sufficient and all good and, and, and greater than anything that we could ever turn or fix our eyes on, right? We need to be constantly reminded that Jesus is better. We need to constantly be reminded as we are prone to wander that we are adopted sons and daughters of the living God. We need to be reminded of our identity. We also need to be reminded that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. He is the place where we find our ultimate joy and our ultimate pleasure. 
We serve and love the living God. These are the words that we need to be reminded of. The truths of God's word found in the text conveyed to us by his spirit. And so, so when, when, when things are difficult, we don't need to be reminded of how dire our circumstances are, but how good our God is. When, when, there, when things look like there's no end in sight in our struggle, and we don't need to be reminded about how powerless we are, but how powerful our Heavenly Father is. When we feel insecure and lonely, like, and don't, we don't need to be reminded about how ineffective we are, but we need to be reminded of how sufficient our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. That's what the Spirit of God wants to tell us. He wants to remind us of God's word and what he says, not the lies that we believe. The second, verse 27 says that he will remind them of the peace that is found only in Jesus. When everything feels like it's falling apart, when when everything feels like it's just crumbling down before us, Jesus wants to remind you, the Holy Spirit wants to remind us, you can have Jesus' peace. You can have Jesus' eternal peace on your hearts when it's troubled. Colossians 3.15 says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. It's saying let it rule and reign. Let the peace of God be found where God is found, where God's gospel is found. We can have peace because, like we said earlier, we get eternal life. This isn't the end game. No matter how crazy things get, we have the gospel of Jesus to trust in, that whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. If you're a follower of Jesus, this isn't the end for you. We have peace on earth because our hope is not earthly but eternal. The Spirit of God reminds us that, hey, God's in control, not us, so we don't have to worry. Like, if you believe that God loves you, then why would you have to fret or worry about how your life's going to end up? If you believe that he loves you, why do you have to worry about how you're going to be provided for? He loves you. He's a loving father. And if he loves you, everything, even the hard stuff, you know, therefore, you're good. And so the Spirit will remind us that we have peace with God and we have peace from God. As Austin said a couple weeks ago, we get to be with Jesus for all of eternity. None of the present or the future suffering that we would ever go through can compare to being next to Jesus for all of eternity. This should do something in our hearts. This should stir something in our hearts to say, man, I believe the word of God as he's reminding me of it. Man, I have incredible peace. And there's one more thing that it should stir in our heart. It should stir gospel joy. So the, the last thing that Jesus says the Spirit will remind them of in verse 28 is that he remind them of the joy that can only be found in the gospel. Jesus told them that, hey, I'm going to the Father, and if you love me, you would have rejoiced at that. The reason why is because that's the win. The fact that Jesus is going to conquer death and go to the right hand of the Father is the win. They should rejoice in that. Christian in the room, does your life, is your life a humdrum, mosey as you go on through life, as if our Savior is still in the tomb? Or is it marked by the joy because our Savior is seated at the right hand of the Father? If we love Jesus, the Spirit of God lives in us, and he will remind us about the joy that is in the gospel. If you go to work and you're telling your coworkers, hey, man, you need to go to City Light, or hey, man, I really want you to meet this Jesus guy, and you're walking around with your head down all sad and disappointed all the time, they're not going to want that Jesus or your church, I promise you. But if you're joyfully serving even in the midst of your trials, if you're caring about people even in the midst of your hurt, or encouraging even in the times where you're not feeling completely encouraged because you're 
you have joy in the gospel, then those people will be drawn to your Jesus. We get to show Jesus through our joy. Verse 26 says that the Holy Spirit is the helper. He is the one who Jesus has sent on his behalf, in his stead. He is the great um, tap in, like, like wrestling analogy, like he's going to tap in and come fight for us. That, that's who he is. And so when Jesus says that, he, he also says something else, though, because there's some, there's some good news, but then there's also bad news uh, that he leaves them with because there's a, there's a ruler in this world. Here's, verse 30, here's what it says. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. And so as the disciples are headed toward the reality of Jesus' departure, they will find themselves again in a desperate place, seemingly alone, defenseless toward the devil's accusations and the world's persecutions. But the good news is, God's going to send his spirit. That's what, to remind them of God's love, to remind them of God's goodness, along with as they start to see the Satan's bad news is that he's going to try them. He's going to try to convince them of something different. And so, like us, they needed someone to come on earth because Jesus was going to heaven. But on earth, the ruler uses the world to make us believe lies, right? About ourselves, about Jesus, what is true. So, Okay, you've seen these movies. They're kind of corny sometimes, but like uh, the movies where the, a guy has like a, um, an angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other one. Like it's like this weird dichotomy there, but I, I do believe that this is, that's what Jesus is trying to show us here is that the struggle is real in life where there is something, someone trying to tell you things that are false and lies, but there's also the spirit of God saying, hey, don't believe those lies. My truth is better. And so that's what Jesus is showing them. John 14 is showing us that the Spirit of God points to our advocate, Jesus, and the implications of loving him. But here's the difficulty of all of that. How do we distinguish between what God is saying and what the devil is telling us? So because sometimes when we hear those things, we're like, man, is that God or is that not God? I I can't tell. So let, let me give you a little bit of a litmus test for that. The devil points to condemnation. Condemnation accuses you and says your identity is based on your activity. Hear hear me again. Condemnation says that your identity, who you are, is based on your activity. So so when you have failed at something, the, the condemnation says, well, you're a failure. Listen to me. Our Heavenly Father will never say the words, you are a failure. That is not him. That is always, always, always the devil. Romans 8.1 says this, Therefore there is no condemnation who are in Christ Jesus. So conviction is different. Conviction, though, God will address your activity when you're acting opposite of your identity. He will address your activity when you are acting differently than who you really are. So God will convict you when you failed. And he, he's not going to call you a failure, though. What he's going to say is, you're my son, you're my daughter. And he's going to remind you that you're not a failure, that you have victory in the gospel. That's what defines you. This means that when we are accused of being guilty, the Spirit reminds us of the truth that we have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Our verdict is not guilty, but innocent. Our shame is turned to triumph. Our sorrows are turned to joy. When we believe the lie that something is better, the Spirit comes out and says, no, Jesus is enough. Jesus is greater. All of this sounds great, though, doesn't it? It sounds amazing. 
What a beautiful promise. However, I want to I challenge you this morning. The foundation of this beautiful promise, the promise of help, the foundation of it is love for Jesus. So I want to ask you, do you truly love Jesus? Maybe your answer is no, and you have not received Jesus' love yet, and, and you're not sure whether or not you believe all of this. And, and, and I would say, I completely understand. But if there is a God, and Jesus is real, and this is, he is the Savior, wouldn't you want him to be like this? One who isn't looking after you and saying, man, you better obey me because I said so with empty threats. But I mean, maybe not empty threats, but with threats nonetheless. But he's actually a savior that would say, I love you and I know that you can't meet the standard. So I'm going to meet it for you. In fact, not only am I going to meet the standard for you, I'm going to send my spirit so you can too. A God who would say, I love you and I will die for you. I will die for your sins and I will love you so that you might love me in return. Wouldn't that be the Savior that be worth giving your heart to? I think this morning, that's exactly what he's calling you to do. He's asking, man, come to me. Let me in. Let me love you. Or maybe you have received this love, and, you, and your answer to the question of do you truly love Jesus is an unexpected, yeah. I would argue that you have a very, very small view of God's love. The implications this morning isn't that you need to do more, try harder, but that you need to invest your heart in seeing the deep, deep, deep realities of Jesus' love for you. Continue to look at the fact that the cross is so beautiful, unimaginable in you because God has loved you so infinitely. How many, has anyone ever loved you fully or unconditionally in your life? Has anyone else promised you that, hey, you'll never be alone and actually be with you the entire time? Has anyone else offered you peace and joy and a constant reminder that they love you? The honest answer is no. And so the person who says that they love Jesus, man, I'm calling you to fix your eyes on him. Fix your eyes on his love. Not do good or try harder, but fix your eyes on his loving grace and affections towards you because then our hearts will respond in love to him and obey his commands. What would it look like for a person to love Jesus and by the power of the Spirit obey his commands? Well, based on our text, it would be a person who progressively is learning and knowing God's word. A person who has peace in the midst of trial because they have the peace of Jesus. And it's a person who lives joyfully because they love and are loved by Jesus. I don't know what you came in with today, but... You and I are promised such a beautiful gift in God's helper. And this helper will be with us. He will remind us. And most importantly, he will, he will remind us of the love of Jesus and what he has for us.